Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woohoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day! <laughs> it's hump day. Hump day! <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Donaldson Files. Tom Donaldson. I've got a special guest tonight, uh, Mitch Rollins. Uh, Mitch works for the Center for American Experiments. And he's presently living in Texas, where he witnessed the recent Texas uh, power failure. So we're going to talk about that, and also talk about what it means over, you know, you know what it will mean for energy in particular. So, and he, you know, and we're also going to talk about his studies and also that of some of his colleagues Isaac Orr and others. Uh, and I and I will say, uh, and for full disclosure. Uh, Mitch next, uh, along with uh, John Pelham, uh, did some calculation, helped me with a study on economic issues. So he has done work on behalf of our foundation, and we appreciate John Hinderacker and others allowing uh, both John and Mitch to help us with the project. And so welcome to the show, Mitch. Thank and you. It's good to be if here. You can, you know, kind of, you know, talk about you know what's your role with the uh, you know with the Center for American Experiment? Yeah, so um, actually, I started at the Center for American Experiment when I graduated uh, college in 2018. I graduated from the U of M, uh, University of Minnesota, um, with a history degree, and I started as an intern for the center at about 2018. And from there, I was hired on as a researcher, so I began doing research projects for the policy fellows at the center uh, concerning economics, uh, healthcare, education, but primarily uh, energy issues with Isaac Orr, as uh, who you mentioned already. Um, and then just this past year, I was uh, given the role as policy analyst for the energy sector in Minnesota. So I've been working uh, on these issues for quite a while now, a few years, and uh, uh, that's really my role at the center. I still do other issues. Uh, I still handle other issues. As you said, I helped you with a report with uh, John Phelan on economics. Uh, but, yeah, energy is my main focus at the center. All right. Well, here's – yeah, okay. Yeah, actually, I did not know that. I just, I just assumed you were just an economist. You, know, you were one of the economists there. <laughs> no, yep. So, yep, I was actually just a because, researcher to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, actually because the the study you did, I, I want to kinda of tell people before we get into it is that and it's gonna be part of a book that I'm working on, but it was a project and I asked you guys to basically you know, you know if we lowered the social security overall tax by one percent, you know, what would be the break you know, what would be the break even point and how much money you would raise if you lifted the entire cap. And I mean, obviously, it may not, you know, as John Pelham said, it's not exactly my idea of a tax reform, but it did, uh, <laughs> but did answer a lot of questions that we had. So, yeah, and I want to thank you for that. Okay, now this study you did, and 
Yeah, I want to kind of start off is, is that when energy fails, grading the reliability of energy sources during the Texas power outrage, out, outages. Uh, you know, first of all, explain the study and what you know how you you know what you were doing with the study, how it was put together, uh, you know your you know, what you were judging and the endpoints and your you know. So if somebody would say, you know. You know, what, how what was the study? Just say, this is what the study was, and this is how I reached my conclusion. Yeah, and uh, so in the in the aftermath of the Texas power outages, you know, there are a lot of uh, theories going around with what energy sources were to blame uh, for the outages. And um, I don't necessarily think it was all one source. A lot of energy sources had problems, but I wanted to know which energy sources came to the rescue and which ones did – uh, Texas and the Texans who went without power rely on for uh, uh, during the, the power outages. And it was intended to counter this narrative floating around that uh, wind energy during the outages shouldn't be scrutinized because they did better than day-ahead forecasts uh, that showed wind uh, production was very low during the energy crisis to begin with. Uh, but because wind did a little better uh, a little better, this narrative says, uh, it deserves the equivalent of a participation trophy uh, because it showed up at all. And uh, I did a little research into this, and it actually turns out that wind energy underperformed according to seasonal assessments that uh, the Texas uh, grid operators, uh, known as ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, uh, it, it underperformed according to what their assessments were for winter preparation. And, you know, I didn't really care about forecasts. I wanted to know which sources uh, did the Texans rely on uh, during the outages. And, you know, I found that uh, wind energy provided, on average, only 12% of its total capacity throughout the power outages, uh, whereas natural gas, coal, and nuclear provided 30, 40, 50, up to 75% of their uh, capacity uh, throughout the energy emergency. And these three sources of energy alone, uh, gas, coal, and nuclear, provided around 90% of all generation throughout the energy crisis in Texas. Um, and so my article was intended to show that if wind energy deserves a participation trophy, then nuclear, coal, and natural gas took first, second, and third place. Um, and it really just shows that, you know, power outage, such as uh, what happened in Texas, it simply doesn't matter if wind and solar outperform day-ahead forecasts. The only thing that matters is what energy sources were there and able to provide immediate relief to bring on the lights and heating uh, in Texas. You know, millions of people went without power for sometimes days, um, and it just didn't matter if wind energy was outperforming uh, really bad forecasts to begin with. Um, you know, simply put, wind and energy, or wind and solar for large portions of the day were no-shows when Texas needed the electricity the most. Uh, and if not for fuel-based energy sources on the grid, uh, the power outages would have been uh, went from bad to worse in Texas. Uh, would have went from uh, rolling blackouts that are controlled by the grid to probably uncontrolled blackouts. Uh, with uh, really no idea of when the power and lights would come back on. So that was the intention of my, uh, of my study, just to show that, well, you know, uh, energy sources that are reliable 
like coal and nuclear really saved the day for millions of Texans. Well, you know, like I said, we're going to follow more up on that uh, yeah. uh, because I do want to follow up on each energy source and where they succeeded, where they failed, because you, you did make the point that there were issues with all of them, but as you just stated, yep. you know, some were more reliable than others. Well, let me ask you a question. How did Texas get to this point? I mean, you have a, a, a state that produces, essentially can produce its own energy. <laughs> yep. I mean, um, yep. it's, if there was ever a state self-sufficient. So uh, how I mean, how did the grid fail so miserably? How did they get to where they were? Yeah, and yeah, this situation. is where bad planning and uh, bad policies really come into play uh, in the uh, electrical grid in uh, Texas. As I said, it's known as ERCOT. Um, they didn't incorporate enough assurances on the grid to keep this from happening, and it really begins with the push for renewable energy sources, uh, you know, years in advance. Um, since the passage of certain uh, uh, subsidies for renewable energy sources, such as the uh, production tax credit, that uh, gives wind facilities, qualifying wind facilities, $23 per megawatt hour in some cases. Uh, they can offer their electricity generation, you know, at you know, to the grid, uh, the wholesale market, uh, for almost nothing. And they can even offer at times when the supply of wind energy is really high, uh, they can supply the grid for negative prices. Um, as you can imagine, thermal generators, generators that don't uh, get this subsidy just have a very difficult time competing with this uh, on the wholesale market. So wind energy can uh, outbid thermal generators substantially, uh, and they're usually dispatched first. And what this leads to over time is, uh, you know, reliable energy sources like coal and nuclear, uh, the lack of investment. Uh, no one wants to invest in these anymore because wind energy is so much more profitable based on these subsidies. And so you, you get the, the situation where thermal generators aren't invested, and in fact, they're disinvested. And so uh, as, as an example, in Texas, since 2010, about 3,500 megawatts of coal capacity has left the grid entirely, and natural gas and nuclear, um, th their capacities have remained largely constant. Uh, this, is in co uh, this is compared to uh, wind energy. The capacity has grown by over 18,000 megawatts since 2010. And uh, just so people know that this wind energy is intermittent. Uh, it, it can only it's weather dependent, and it only provides electricity if the yeah. wind is blowing. And so, as we see on yeah, the hold Texas, on, yeah, hold uh, yeah. During, yeah, 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 hold on that thought, Mitch. This is Tom Donaldson here, the Donaldson Files and the Fashion News Radio Network. We'll continue that afterwards uh, for some public service announcement and from our sponsor here, the Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exactly I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 
Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to the Donaldson Files here. This is Tom Donaldson with special guest Mitch Rawlings, who is a fellow. Are you a, a fellow or researcher? No, now I'm just a, I, I'm a policy analyst. So I'm not necessarily a policy fellow, but I am a policy analyst. Policy analyst at the Center for American Experiment, which is out of uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, Mitch presently is now living here in Texas where I guess you're the Texas uh, section of the of the center, correct? <laughs> uh, yeah, I can act in that way, but uh, <laughs> most of my research is <laughs> still based in uh, in Minnesota. Yep. Yeah. Now, you mentioned, okay, the subsidy side, so go ahead and continue that discussion where basically you're paying utility companies to use wind is essentially what the government yep. is doing. Is, is that a good way of saying it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, that's that's the result of it, um, because it, it's it provides just such a lack of incentive to invest in in thermal generators. Because what happens is sometimes, based on the subsidy, wind facilities can uh, uh, supply the grid with negative prices, and so when you turn to the thermal generators, they're they're faced with a pretty tough decision. They can either keep operating at negative prices or bear the cost of shutting down and starting back up when they can compete again, which either way, they're losing money. So uh, sometimes they they continue to operate and supply electricity at negative prices and lose value. Now you can imagine that uh, people don't want to invest in that, especially when they can invest in something like wind energy that gets a guarantee uh, price per megawatt hour. Um, and what this has led to in Texas, as I was saying, coal capacity has decreased Nuclear and natural gas have remained largely constant since 2010, uh, but wind energy has increased by over 18,000 megawatts and solar by 2,400 megawatts. Um, and this is during the time uh, since uh, 2010, growth in electricity demand in Texas has grown about 20%. Uh, and so the state has essentially been uh, uh, meeting a growth in demand with purely intermittent and weather-dependent sources like wind and solar. Um, and that does not uh, assure a, uh, ensure a reliable grid at all. In fact, it leads to moments, as we just saw today, where you're over-dependent and over-reliant on intermittent sources. Um, and there are certain other things uh, on the ERCOT grid that uh, give that kind of heighten this fact, uh, especially the fact that ERCOT does not have a required reserve margin to ensure there's enough capacity on the grid. Um, and reserve margin is just exactly kind of how it sounds, uh, reserve capacity in the case of their planning not coming through or emergency events like this. Um, and they don't have a required reserve margin. Every other grid in the country does have a reserve margin. Uh, and so an increased reliance on wind and solar a lack of investment in reliable energy sources, uh, subsidies that depress market prices, and in, uh, a lack of an enforced reserve margin is a recipe for disaster. And that's exactly what we saw take place in Texas. 
again, explain to me the the fire aircock. You know what is that? I mean, because you've heard that quite a bit. Uh, so that is basically the people who run the you you know run the grid. Can, you know what do so? Kind of talk about that. The, the organization responsible for running the grid is it ERCOT? Is that how they? Yeah. So you know, in in Minnesota, we're ran by the Midcontinent Independent System Operator, uh, and they control uh, every uh, from a region from Louisiana up to Minnesota and North Dakota, um, and they. You know, ERCOT is kind of the same thing. They're the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which is kind of ironic considering they uh, couldn't uh, couldn't ensure the reliability on their own grid. Uh, so it's kind of an ironic name. Uh, but, they, yeah, they make sure that there's enough capacity on the grid to meet demand. Uh, they take in uh, uh, market prices and just make sure that everything's kind of running smoothly. Uh, I'm, not sh- I'm not totally sure of how much, uh, you know, uh, authority and enforcement they they have i've been reading stuff uh on how they were kind of in unable to require a lot of these utilities in texas uh to maintain uh certain uh winterizing and weatherizing uh features on their infrastructure uh but they act in a in a very similar way ERCOT is a different uh beast when it comes to uh electricity grids because they're not controlled by the federal government Hmm. Are they controlled by Texas then? Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're independent. They're isolated. So you hear a lot of talk about uh, the isolated nature of the Texas grid. And had they been less isolated, maybe they would have been able to, like, import electricity from other electricity grids uh, in the country. But that that's, that's largely inter- inaccurate uh, to say. Um, simply because every other electricity grid was experiencing uh, their own problems during this winter storm. Uh, And even MISO, uh, the continent independent uh, system operator for Minnesota, um, they said that imports are likely uh, or unlikely to happen during this winter uh, uh, storm. So they had to uh, issue max generation uh, emergencies, which basically means all hands on deck, we need every electricity source and all the power we can get uh, to be able to supply demand uh, during this winter uh, storm. So it, it's pretty inaccurate to say that because of the isolated nature of Texas, uh, they they were unable to meet uh, the demand. Uh, imports were out of the question as it was. Okay, okay here, uh, let's kind of go through some of the things that you said. Major factor, contribute energy. All right, Texas, did not winterize their electricity infrastructure. Uh, yeah. Basically, 30 gigawatts of a fuel-based natural gas. So pipelines froze. You had safety mechanism that basically shut down nuclear and coal facilities uh, to protect against extreme cold. And this kind of represents, what, 30% of their capacity in the grid. So I guess the question would be is, what did they fail to do to winterize how would they winterize? You know, define winterizing and how it's done to, you know, let's say to what should have been done to winterize, and how what's that process and how it works. Yeah, yeah, and uh, winterizing is just something that northern states do that are typically colder than southern states uh, do to ensure that energy infrastructure can handle extreme weather in the winter. 
Um, you know, they do things like building uh, windbreak structures to block the wind, uh, installing temperature gauges and equipment to monitor whether it's going to freeze or not, uh, ensuring there's proper insulation on infrastructure components, uh, installing covers on equipment to uh, prevent ice buildup, uh, and uh, even even things like having sufficient staff on hand helps in these moments. Uh, to quickly detect and resolve issues uh, that the weather might bring. Um, and, of course, uh, uh, wind turbines can also be installed with heating mechanisms to reduce uh, ice buildup on the blades. Now, while these, these steps can be taken, uh, nothing is bulletproof. Uh, Minnesota still experiences difficulties, uh, as they did in the polar vortex of 2019, uh, which they had trouble keeping the wind turbine spitting because of such low uh, temperatures. It was like negative 20s. And, uh, uh, and we also happened to get snow during that polar vortex, which covered a lot of the solar panels. Uh, so uh, during this time, XL had to ask hundreds of thousands of its customers to reduce thermostats to maintain reliable service. Uh, and, you know, once again, thermal generators such as uh, nuclear coal and natural gas save the day for, you know, millions of Minnesotans. So while you can take these steps, you know, nothing is uh, uh, bulletproof. And, uh, mm. you know, th there's also a cost with all this stuff, too. So it's not as easy as saying Texas should have done all this. Uh, you know, they get weather like this very rarely. Uh, they, you know, as it's seen, they should have done something like this. But, you know, you can you can see why they, they chose not to, because it's costly for maybe a week of bad weather. Yeah. Well, let me put this, okay, let's take nuclear energy. Uh, you know, again, you said in your report, I want to kind of quote you right here. Uh, yep. Safety mechanism to shut down nuclear and coal facility protect against extreme cold temperature. What's the impact of cold temperature on nuclear plants? I mean, what are you tell what are you telling the you know, the readers? So yeah, they they simply just have a safety mechanism in their structure to say if it gets too cold uh, to shut down. Um, and to stop producing electricity in order to protect it from further damage. Uh, and this only happened to one of the units, I believe. And, uh, you know, as a nuclear facility, they have, they have certain, uh, you know, regulations that they have to abide by that are a little bit more stricter than, the, uh, uh, than other energy sources. So they're able to handle the cold a little bit, but they do still have safety mechanisms in there uh, in order to protect them from freezing temperatures. Now, would that would that be a safety threat as far as uh, anything of a meltdown, or is it just simply it just won't work? Uh, uh, yeah, that uh, that it just won't work. You know, I'm, uh, it, you know, there's there's probably multiple reasons why they would want to do that, but yeah, in order to prevent it from you know damaging the the facility any any more than it could be, uh, yeah, they shut down in order to do that, and that's just part of the safety mechanisms that uh, nuclear has to have in order to remain safe and you know operational for for the future. And the same thing with coal, then. So you would have the same. Yeah. Uh, cool. All right. Obviously, uh, the you know, more a higher percentage of wind and solar capacity were on the grid. So now you, I want you to kind of repeat one more time. Um, you know, the word to I me mean, was was it like fifty percent of the turbines froze? I mean, I read that somewhere. Is that uh, an accurate number? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's not entirely clear uh, uh, why, you know, if it, if it was just the winds froze or simply low wind speeds, uh, but a, a certain amount of the, the wind turbines did freeze. A certain amount weren't spinning because of low wind speeds. Uh, and, yeah, it was somewhere around half of the entire uh, wind uh, energy mix that they have in Texas uh, became inoperable. And the the other ones that were operable really did nothing anyways. So yeah, this was a tremendous failure failure of wind energy in Texas. Okay. All right. Now, quick question one more time. Can you repeat this? How do you keep a wind turbine from freezing? Or what's the mechanism, the best mechanism to at least assure that they don't, you know, that they reduce the buildup of ice? Yeah, it's a, it's as simple as you know building them with heaters installed in them in their in their uh, uh, infrastructure in order to prevent them from icing over and uh, from damaging them from spinning. Because uh, in Minnesota they also have mechanisms that prevent them from spinning in cold temperatures. Um, you know if they get too low, um, but this can be you know kind of sidestepped if they have heaters installed on their <laughs> on their turbines. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's something that Texas could have done, but, you know, again, it, there's a cost to it. And especially if you're retroactively doing it, uh, there's a cost to that. So they could have done it, you know, as the leading uh, state of wind energy, you know, maybe they should have done it. Uh, but, yeah, there is, there is a cost-benefit analysis you have to go through for that. Right, hold on to thought. This is Tom Donaldson uh, with Mitch Rawlings of the Center for American Experiment. We're talking the Texas failure power outage. And we'll be right back here after a word from our sponsor, as well as some PSA here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. You might know me. I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger is too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Don't forget our website is the Bachelor News Radio Network. You can get all of our shows. Uh, you go on the website. You just pick out uh, which of our programs, and you can listen to back episodes anytime. Like this particular show should be up on the board next week here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. If you want to call, call 646 929 Zero one three zero six four six nine two nine zero one three zero. All right, the subsidies that you described earlier were these subsidies from Texas, the Texas state government subsidies. No, these are federal enacted subsidies. Uh, any anywhere in the country, you can you can grab these if you want. All right, uh, what? Uh, how much? Okay, wind. How much is wind 
subsidized versus, let's say, coal and nuclear. You know, what if somebody said to you, what's, you know, because everybody will say, well, you know, don't we subsidize wind? Don't we, no, don't we subsidize nuclear? Don't we subsidize coal, natural gas, oil? Uh, what's your answer to that? Uh, my answer is uh, simply that uh, this the something like the production tax credit has a unique effect on the market. Uh, 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 there are subsidies for you know uh, some thermal based uh, generators, uh, but the as I said earlier and to kind of explain the the, the production tax credit uh, really depresses market prices. Uh, and it makes it incredibly difficult to maintain a reliable grid. You know, if, if thermal generators were getting uh, the subsidized, subsidization that uh, renewable energy sources were uh, getting, they wouldn't have a problem competing on the uh, uh, on uh, keeping up with the market prices. Uh, the production tax credit, you know, depresses the value so much that it, it's really difficult to maintain a reliable grid. As I said, uh, you know, especially on a grid such as uh, Texas's, where they don't have a reserve margin or, uh, you know, a reliability standard to make sure that um, enough reliable dispatchable, which just means you can pump more fuel in it to produce more electricity, um, when they don't have some assurances like that to maintain the reliability of their uh, energy grid, uh, the subsidy for renewable energy is uh, really, really devastating uh, to the point of what you saw during the Texas power outages. I mean, they just simply didn't have enough uh, reliable capacity on the grid to meet the supply, uh, to meet the demand in uh, electricity. Uh, and that's really the basic, that's really the most basic level of why these power outages happened, uh, because over time, uh, the subsidies for wind energy and solar to a certain extent uh, have been undercutting and undervaluing these, you know, nuclear and coal facilities. And uh, they just, now they don't have enough to maintain reliability on the grid. Okay. Let me, uh, would you, okay. Would you say overall, if somebody said from the federal government, who gets the most subsidies on the, on the energy market from the federal government? Yeah, I would say that's definitely renewables. As of right now, that's definitely renewable energies. Okay. Now, you mentioned nuclear. You know, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, number one, you know, it seems to me if, let's say, for example, you wanted to have very little pollution or if you are the kind of person who counts the number of CO2s in the atmosphere, uh, certainly nuclear would fit that category, probably as well as anybody, any other source of energy, you know, why aren't we emphasizing that more if, for example, CO2 is the issue? Yeah, uh, uh, we've made this point quite often. If if the climate change activists were really sincere about the, the need to reduce emissions as quickly as possible uh, while maintaining a reliable grid, uh, they would be advocating for nuclear energy all the way, and they would have started 10 to 20 years ago. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, the the renewable energy lobby has been fairly successful in its marketing. Uh, the, you know, there's a lot of scare tactic, tactics that go along with uh, nuclear uh, and, and uh, advocating for it. Uh, they don't want what happened in Fukushima and other places. 
to to happen here. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of safety mechanisms that go along with nuclear that prevent this from happening. Uh, another big concern is you know where you stash the disposed fuel. Um, and, you know, these are largely overblown as well because, you know, there's not that much of it to deal with. Um, you know, it's, it's fairly small compared to the, the land that uh, wind and solar take up. And, uh, um, yeah, it, it, if they were sincere about their calls to reduce emissions as quickly as possible, nuclear would be uh, the choice that they would go with for sure. Okay, now what's the biggest issue in the promotion of nuclear? I mean, you, other than what you just stated, from a financial point of view, uh, let's just, uh, let me put it this way: if we got rid of all the subsidies, wind, solar, nuclear, whatever, you know, the various production subsidies you talked about, would that make nuclear more competitive to build more plants? Yeah, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they have they have pretty high initial capital costs. Um, and so that that limits the 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 desire to invest in these uh, energy sources, whereas wind and solar have fairly low uh, initial st- uh, capital costs. But the the great thing about nuclear uh, energy is that these things last for 60 uh, to 80 years sometimes, um, and they outlive their initial capital payments, which means that after they're done. Uh, paying off their or their initial capital investments, you know, they're providing very cheap electricity. Uh, and that's the case in Minnesota with our two uh, nuclear plants, uh, Monticello and uh, Prairie Island. You know, I think they're, I think they cost, you know, around 40 or below dollars per megawatt hour. Uh, whereas solar, for instance, even uh, with these subsidies can cost, you know, $60 or higher. And, uh, uh, so over time, nuclear is a much better investment, in my opinion. And we actually show the the all-in costs of, uh, of wind and solar in one of our reports, doubling down on failure. Um, and we, we did this in 2019. And we showed that, um, you know, the cost of wind energy doesn't just stop with putting in wind energy. Uh, if you're if your goal on an energy market is to reduce CO2 emissions, you're, you're most likely going to do two things. Uh, take away the coal plants and uh, replace them with a combination of wind, solar, and natural gas. And in our opinion, uh, the basis of this study is that if you're going to uh, put in wind energy sources to get rid of uh, coal facilities, but you need natural gas to maintain the reliability, then you should also include the cost of these natural gas plants in your assessment of what the transition to renewable energy really costs. And when you do this, the cost for uh, uh, wind energy and solar energy go through the roof over $100 a megawatt hour. Um, and, and so the, the economics for nuclear, because they don't need a backup energy source, uh, because they can they can roll 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Uh, whereas wind and solar, uh, they you know they need the the wind to be blown and the sun to be shining to uh, to produce electricity. Uh, and so when you don't need the backup energy sources on the grid, you know nuclear becomes a far less expensive uh, energy source to go with if your goal is to reduce uh, emissions on the grid. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's go back to the reliability. So let's kind of look at the results mm-hmm. uh, of, your, of the study. The uh, Texas average 
hourly capacity factor by energy source. You basically have well, nuclear is about what seventy four percent. Does that mean it was seventy four percent effect? I mean, explain, I guess I say what's seventy four percent? You got coal and natural gas thirty nine thirty four percent. Solar was twenty four percent. Hydro was fourteen. Uh, um, wind was twelve. Okay, first of all, number one, if somebody says seventy five percent, what are you telling the the, the reader? You know, is this the efficacy per hour? Yeah, so I, I took a time frame from 3 a.m. on uh, February 15th when the supply crashed on the Texas grid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to the, at the time, the most available data I had to 12 a.m. on uh, February 17th. And so during this time, uh, nuclear uh, nuclear energy in on the Texas grid operated on average 76% capacity factors, which just means that out of the capacity they had on the grid, 76% of it was producing electricity. Um, and that goes for coal, natural gas, solar, hydro, and wind. Uh, as you said, uh, 39% for coal, 38% for natural gas, 24% for solar, 18% for hydro and 12% for wind. And, you know, I just applied some grades to these uh, capacity factors to show, you know, just kind of an easy, uh, relatable uh, uh, scale to say, all right, which which energy sources perform the best during the outages? Um, and nuclear received the highest of an A. Uh, coal, coal and natural gas received Cs. Uh, solar was a D and hydro and wind were F. So, you know, it's just, it, it kind of just shows the energy sources that came uh, to the, to the relief of millions of Texans going without power were all fuel-based energy sources. Mm-hmm. Well, how, why would nuclear be more effective? And you know, what's your rationale? Uh, I mean, why? Because these these uh, uh, facilities were designed to run constantly, so the the only reason it wasn't a hundred percent was because one of the units crashed because they, or you know they the system uh, mechanisms uh, shut it offline to protect it from further damage with the with the weather. And so these these things typically go, you know, 90 to 100% all year round. And they're one of the most reliable energy sources that we have. Uh, and they're designed to do this because shutting them down and starting them back up has tremendous costs associated with it. So they're, you know, they're not a flexible energy source. They're made to just provide baseload power to the grid uh, 100% of the time, whereas, you know, coal is also, it, it, it also acts in that way, but you can ramp it up and ramp it down. Um, you know, it's less costly to do that, but it's still pretty costly to do that. Uh, and natural gas is designed to be kind of the the flexible energy source that keeps up with what the supply is demanding or with, with, with what the electricity demand is asking uh, the grid to supply at that moment. And obviously, wind and solar, you know, they're they're intermittent, so they just kind of come and go as the weather permits. Okay, now you also had Texas highest hourly capacity factor by energy source. Now, what's the difference between that and let's say the average hour capacity factor by, you know, the first day, first set of data we had versus? I mean, what's the difference here? You know, what are you? Yeah, so. 
Yeah, the uh, the the first one I took was the average throughout the that time frame, and this one is showing the highest hourly capacity. So, um, you know, they show the data based on one hour intervals, and I I did this because some energy sources, like solar, for instance, uh, can produce pretty efficiently during certain times of the day. Um, and so when the sun was shining in one hour, the highest capacity factor solar uh, produced at was 91%. And, you know, that's fine. And I wanted to give that piece of information, you know, just to say that, you know, when the sun is shining, solar can show up and provide some relief. Uh, but unfortunately, as you can imagine, for the uh, Texans that went without power, uh, they didn't care how efficient solar was during uh, the day. You know, when the sun went down, uh, they were still without power and solar was nowhere to be seen. Um, and so that's why I also have the third set of data there, the lowest capacity factors uh, by energy source during the same time frame. And obviously solar was at zero for their lowest. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, okay, so basically the sun's shiny, solar does well. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I find it interesting, regardless, you know, how you look at whatever data you're looking at, wind's always near the bottom. Yep, yep. Wind can be pretty efficient uh, if the wind is blowing, but that was not the case during these power outages. And that's that's uh, one of the features that you get when you invest uh, so heavily in wind energy. Uh, you know, Excel has a, uh, a mention in their resource plan in Minnesota uh, about a time when all of MISO's grid uh, of uh, uh, wind energy, about 17,000 megawatts on the grid, uh, during one, uh, one hour interval in uh, 2018 in July, this was no extreme weather. This was simply a windless day. Uh, all of the capacity on MISO's grid was producing at minus 11 megawatts. So that means that they were taking in more power than they were producing. And, you know, this can happen when you over-rely on an energy source like wind. Sometimes it just doesn't show up, uh, and you have to plan accordingly for when it doesn't. That was the case for the Texas power outages, uh, and they didn't plan accordingly for when wind wasn't going to show up. Hey, this is Tom Donaldson here with uh, Mitch Rawlings on the Donaldson Files. Bachelor News Radio Network. Go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse! Go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? Of course. I, I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wow, Jinx. <laughs> Did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. 
Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. If you yeah, thank you. This is Donaldson Files, Tom Donaldson with Mitch Rollins. If you want to advertise on the Donaldson Files, any other shows on the Bachelor News Radio Network, contact LA Bachelor Forty at Gmail dot com. LA Bachelor Forty Gmail dot at Gmail dot com and we'll get you contact you and get you more information on how you can become a sponsor or a are an advertiser here on any of our great programs, including the Donaldson Files, which is twice weekly, so you get two shots. Plus, when you go to the BachelorNewsRadioNetwork.com and people go back and re-listen to this show or other past shows, uh, guess what? They'll hear the same ads again and again and again. So it's not just this show, but when you get back on our website, you can keep you know, that your ad is going to be part of that show, period. So no matter how many times people play, they're going to listen to this ad. So labassreporty at gmail.com. And if you want to comment on this show, feel free to call in 46 646-929-0130. 646-929-0130. And we're back here with uh, Miss Rawlings, who is the a policy analysis policy analysis for the Center for American Experiment. And as I stated earlier, he's a very sharp guy. He he has done research on behalf of America's Majority Foundation, which I'm the project director, uh, and we appreciated his efforts. And 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 he just recently did a study, you know, outlined the issues dealing with the Texas power outages. So, all right. Let me put put it this way. Okay, I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at your studies. You're going to basically say face energy sources pass. And the biggest loser is not so much solar. As you say, when the sun's shining, solar does fairly well. Uh, Mm -hmm. But in the case of wind, it pretty much was at the bottom no matter what. Yep. So here's the question Absolutely. I'm going to throw back to you. You know, the question I'm going to throw back to you will be is why even include this as part of the grid? Yeah, that's when you have question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing, because obviously the other aspect we didn't talk about is, you know, what do you do with a turbine? Because turbines half-life is, you know, you've said nuclear energy goes, you know, uh, you know, could go as long as 60, 80 years. A coal facility, how long do they last? Uh, those those can last, you know, uh, 30, 60 years, you know, depending on, you know, how how roughly they operate. You know, they'll probably need uh, some upgrades uh, at a certain point to keep them going, uh, but they last fairly long as well. Uh, a lot of the uh, coal facilities were built, you know, many years ago, and they're still operating today. Um, but wind and solar have this unique feature where they 
don't necessarily last that long. They, you know, wind wind facilities usually get a 20-year lifespan before they need to be entirely repowered, which is essentially building new wind facilities at these structures. Um, And uh, solar generally lasts about 25 years. And this is because of degrading uh, electricity production over time. You know, solar degrades year by year. uh, And at a certain point, you have to, you know, kind of repower the the panels and, you know, build an entirely new solar field. Uh, Same thing goes with wind. Uh, And so fuel-based energy sources last a lot longer. Um, And as to your question, what's the point of wind energy at all? Uh, You know, as far as a reliability concern, you know, I I don't think they provide any value whatsoever because, as we've seen, they can can operate at 2% capacity factors when power outages are happening. To me, it doesn't really make sense placing more reliance on these energy sources uh, going forward. Um, The only reason that you would put these on the grid is to reduce CO2 emissions or other emissions um, and – and as far as reliability is concerned, I don't think they provide any value. All right. No, okay. What do you do with a wind turbine when the, the uh, it's over? Do you, you have to repower. Kind of, yeah. Because, to, you know, so let me put this. Yep. Yeah. Uh, no, what I'm asking is when a facility, when a wind turbine wears out, uh, you know, how do you get rid of it? I mean, is there a point where you have to get rid of these things, and uh, and where do you stick it? You know, in a dump, yeah, something on you know, a waste. They're uh, they're sticking to the landfills. You know, yeah, they're uh, they're technically uh, recyclable, um, but right now a lot of them are sitting in landfills across the country. You know, unable to because uh, the cost of recycling them just doesn't make sense. So they're uh, they're sitting there, not doing anything, uh, and. Uh, uh, it's hard to it's hard to get rid of them once they're spent, and that goes for uh, solar fields as well. The solar panels very difficult to find a place for them after they're done. Mm-hmm. Well, again, yeah, here's I mean, because here's the thing: if CO2 emission is your number one concern, it would you know obviously nuclear is your number one. To me, would be the most reliable sources, and. And it's just like I said, you you made this statement. I know others, but let me put it this way: we talk about the big subsidies for wind. I, I'm going to say I live in Iowa, and I'm not sure whether or not uh, Brookshire Energy is involved in Minnesota. But in Iowa, they pretty much subsidize it. <laughs> I mean, they are, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, they are in fact the the main re, you know, the main investment, and. And I've listened to, I mean, thing, Warren Buffett has made it clear to his stockholders. You know, he'll talk about, hey, we need renewable energy to save the planet. And, oh, by the way, the only reason why this investment makes money is because they're paying us to do it. Yep. Absolutely. And, so, and yeah, to, to clarify, too, you know, fossil fuels do receive subsidies. You know, I didn't want to downplay that, but I would have to imagine – on a per megawatt or per megawatt hour basis, uh, renewable subsidies do outweigh what the fossil fuel industry does receive. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's an enormous profit opportunity for whoever wants to start doing it. 
Um, and it's provided by the uh, things like the production tax credit that gives them a guaranteed price per megawatt hour that they produce into the market. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, okay. The, the, now, let me put it in Minnesota, you guys did a study a while back on the cost of doing 50% wind and solar. Uh, yeah, could you very briefly re? You know, kind of remind folks uh, about that study, the cost, what it would cost people overall in energy prices. Because I remember you guys, you know, found that the increase was substantial. Yeah, we, we found that uh, um, the the cost, and all we did to find this was take the resource plans from utility companies in Minnesota. So we didn't like you know, theorize or, you know, place hypothetical uh, uh, capacity additions onto the grid. We took exactly what utility companies were planning to do already and said, all right, what is this going to cost? And we found out that it would cost over $80 billion through uh, 2050 to produce the kind of transition that they were uh, seeking. And I think uh, I don't have the, the, the stats at the top of my head right now, but I think it would have cost uh, each customer uh, in Minnesota over $1,200 per year to uh, to uh, afford this plan. Um, and like I said, all we did was take the capacity additions uh, for wind, solar, and natural gas that each utility company was planning and then quantified it and said, all right, how much is this going to cost? And, yeah, our result was eighty over $80 billion. You know, the other thing, you know, the other thing too, is that, the other thing that really surprised me, and this it goes back to the point that uh, you know you talk, you, know, you kind of talk about, was this: uh, the utility company themselves were going to make thirty billion dollars in profit. I mean, they were guaranteed yep. profit. So, in effect, you're paying utility companies profit to do this. I mean, they're making out like bandits. Uh, the wind investors are making out like bandits and the customer is paying up the nose. Um, yep. I guess it goes back to, so, you know, I mean, it, it, I guess to me, this whole thing, I mean, like I say, I've, I've been more of a skeptic to what extent human activity is a major factor in CO2 or even if, you know, that's another debate for another time. But it always, I mean, like Michael Schellenberger, who, you know, just wrote a book and, and by the way, Michael Schellenberger is a believer in human caused climate change. But he is a big nuclear advocate. He basically came out and said, you know, this wind stuff is nonsense. Now, if we're really serious, we've got nuclear. And even Michael Moore did a – didn't he just do a documentary basically saying, boy, is this a ripoff? You know, wind is a yep. ripoff? Yep, he did. Yeah. <laughs> and so even, yeah, and, even and some I, of the most far left can, can you know, say these things and, and know yeah. that wind and solar are not for us. Yeah. Well, let me ask a question. Do they still have that available on YouTube? Because I know for a while, uh, you know, Michael Moore couldn't, you know, they were not allowing that video at all on YouTube. If I remember correctly, yeah, there not... was kind of a. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not sure about that, but hopefully it is because it's, it's uh, informative, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. Okay. We got about a few minutes left here. So, first of all, what projects are you going to be working on in the. The upcoming year. Is there anything you're working on right now? 
Uh, yeah, so we just completed basically reinventing uh, our study that we did for Minnesota, uh, but we did it for XL Energy, the largest utility company in Minnesota uh, specifically. And we just filed uh, our report um, to the IRP, the resource planning uh, docket in our state at the Public Utilities Commission, where we found that um, XL's recent uh, resource plan is going to cost over $57 billion in the same way that our doubling down uh, paper showed. Uh, so we just got done doing that report. Uh, we plan to do an environmental study uh, uh, replicating uh, the same kind of report, but seeing what it would take to go 100% renewable uh, with adding the uh, uh, battery storage uh, in the in the scenario, and then also looking at what you know how how much land is it going to take up, how much uh, 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 materials are we going to need uh, from uh, to build these wind turbines, uh, and then we you know we also do uh, studies you know for economics and 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 all that right. too. So if you do want to get, you know, involved in the, what the American uh, center of the American experiment is doing, you know, you can go to American experiment.org. Uh, we, we do have a donate button right there. If you want to uh, uh, go ahead and do that, but you can also just check out uh, what we write about, uh, what, what we're saying and how we're Im impacting Minnesota and elsewhere. Cause we do have pr a pretty large, uh, you know, uh, national presence as well in these issues. Um, you can also go to uh, Facebook. We have a Facebook page, Center of the American Experiment, uh, at American Experiment. We have a, uh Instagram that you can check out, um, but I would say Facebook and our website are the best ways to keep up with what uh, our uh, organization is doing. Oh, okay. So, well, yeah, and uh, so you've got quite a bit of work coming for you. Now, are you doing any economic studies? Are you, I guess I know you mentioned that you're, you know, mostly you work with Isaac Gore, but are you doing anything with John Pelham at all or? Nope, not lately. Uh, sticking, yeah, sticking primarily to the energy stuff. Uh, we also help out our organizations around the country uh, trying to figure out what their state uh, uh, renewable energy mandates are going to cost them. So, you know, I, I stay pretty busy with the uh, with the energy research as it is. Uh, but, you know, who knows in the future I could uh, – I could be on to other uh, projects here and there, yeah. uh, but as of right now, energy is the, the sole one right now. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Um, well, I want to, again, thank you very much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, and um, I know, like I say, it's, uh, you know, it's great. It was great talking to you. And I know, like I say, you've done some great, you know, the Center for American Experiment is a great, great think tank. It's one of the, you know, it's one of the best out there, uh, and and they and they've done some of the best work, especially on the energy side, the economic side, and I know you guys also have some really good, you know, very briefly. We've got about a minute left, but I know I know it's not your area of expertise, but you also have you know, some really good researchers in education. So can you kind of briefly talk about that? Yeah, that, that falls on uh, Katrin Wigfall, the policy fellow. Uh, she is phenomenal at her job, uh, does a lot of good things dealing with the education unions and talking about opening up our schools. So definitely go check out what she writes about education. Uh, she is a, she's a great resource for that area. All right, well, listen, thank you very much, uh, Mitch Rollins, for, Mitch Rollins, for the 
Center for American Experiment. We appreciate you being on this show. Thank you, sir. This is the Donaldson File saying good night, and we'll see you next Tuesday as Coco and I will be back for the Tuesday edition of the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network.